you keep that uh, passage open there in front of you somewhere, I think you'll, f- you'll find that helpful. Um, I've got a couple of questions just for you to, to think about in a moment. And what we're going to do this morning is, um, over the next few months, once a month, um, we will do something called Christ and Culture. And we introduced that sort of last month. And the idea is to try to engage, at least with part of an aspect, of, of some sort of subject. And so this morning we'll think about the gospel and truth. And so hopefully, I, th- I think I have a couple of questions for you there. Just, just with who you're sort of sat next to or, or near, just for the next couple of minutes to, to think about. Uh, do the claims of Christianity need to be true to matter? And can Christianity really offer a truth that is true for all? So... Um, that wasn't a rhetorical sort of command. That was an actual sort of, could you discuss that with those <laughs> next to you? Thank you. I hope that's at least uh, begun to got you thinking. I'm, I'm aware that depending on your personality type, this potentially makes you sort of feel very awkward. But I figure that on a calculation, that's slightly less awkward than the say hello to the person next to you uh, sort of thing. Or at least trying to remember back to what that felt like. Listen to these words here. This is, this is from Yuval Noah Harari, an Israeli historian and academic. And this is from a, a TED uh, article. He says, we are repeatedly told these days that we've entered the terrifying new era of post-truth, in which not just particular facts, but entire histories might be faked. But if this is the era of post-truth, when exactly was the halcyon age of truth? And what triggered our transition to the post-truth era? The internet, social media, the rise of Putin and Trump? A cursory look at history reveals that propaganda and disinformation are nothing new. In fact, humans have always lived in the age of post-truth. Homo sapiens uh, is a post-truth species who conquered this planet thanks above all to the unique human ability 
to create and spread fictions. We are the only mammals that can cooperate with numerous strangers because only we can invent fictional stories, spread them around, and convince millions of others to believe in them. As long as everybody believes in the same fictions, we all obey the same laws and can thereby cooperate effectively. Centuries ago, millions of Christians locked themselves inside a self-reinforcing mythological bubble, never daring to question the factual veracity of the Bible, while millions of Muslims put their unquestioning faith in the Quran. We have zero scientific evidence that Eve was tempted by the serpent, that the souls of all infidels burn in hell after they die, or that the creator of the universe doesn't like it when a Brahmin marries a Dalit. Yet billions of people have believed in these stories for thousands of years. Much of the Bible may be fictional, but it can still bring joy to billions and can still encourage humans to be compassionate, courageous, and creative, just like other great works of fiction, such as Don Quixote, War and Peace, and the Harry Potter books. Well, the question, though, is, is he right? You see those two sort of summaries that he's made, isn't he? That humanity has never really been uh, a species that's been particularly interested with truth, with facts. But then, on the other hand, he says that's maybe not all that bad after all. But is he right? Is the truth less important than results? Is faith really a willful fiction? You know, in a world that's not sure what place truth really has anymore, and what, if any, relation truth has to faith, I want to encourage you this morning that the gospel values truth, it reveals truth, and it is a liberating truth. And so there's four things, four questions, really, that we'll ask this morning. What is truth? Does truth matter? What obscures the truth? And how do I find the truth? Firstly, what is truth? That's the first question that Jesus answers here. Jesus answers a question actually Pilate asks later on in John's Gospel in chapter 18, verse 38. What is truth? It's a very postmodern kind of a question for him to ask. At the time that Pilate asks this, it would have seemed scandalously atheistic and cynical. In modernism, that question, what is truth? might be answered with a list of bullet points of things to believe, things not to believe. As I grew up in postmodernism, really the question that was being asked is, can there really be one truth? Isn't there not just many truths? If postmodernism sort of challenged the idea of meta-narrative, the idea that there could be one truth that could be true for all and that could shape and define and describe everything that's applied universally, then post Postmodernism, the period that we're in now, at best defined as simply being the period after postmodernism, because no one quite knows what it is. There's about four or five different terms people are using. Post postmodernism says nothing matters beyond your micro story. If postmodernism said, I'm not sure if there's really a meta narrative that can shape and, and define sort of everything and for everyone. Post-postmodernism says there simply is nothing beyond your story. There is no truth but your truth. So what is truth? Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. And this is a conversation here that is with people who are amenable to Jesus. They're people who are actually are, are positive about him here. They, they believe, and yet you pick up from the words that Jesus says that maybe they don't quite believe. 
Leon Morris, a biblical commentator, says this, they were inclined to think that what Jesus said was true, but they weren't prepared to yield him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust in him implies. This is a most dangerous spiritual state. To recognize that truth uh, is in Jesus, and to do nothing about it means that, in effect, one ranges oneself within the enemies of the Lord. It means also that there's some powerful spiritual force holding back the would-be believer from what is recognized as the right course of action. Anyone in that position isn't free, but a slave. And what Jesus says here, verse 31 to 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what is the truth? Well, firstly, the truth exists seem like a strange thing to say but in 2021 it's something that actually has to be said that truth as a concept exists there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as a truth that is true for you as well as me see biblical faith is reasonable that is faith is not supposed to be disconnected from reason it's not asking you to stop thinking Faith instead is, is a countercultural view of the fundamental truths of life. It's, it's not a refusal to engage our critical faculties. It's not a sort of intellectual suicide. That's what a cult asks you to do, isn't it? It asks you to stop thinking. Let somebody else think for you. Christianity isn't doing that. The gospel asks you instead to think more and to think differently. And yet, ironically, we've had periods of history where maybe it might be argued that the church ought to perhaps think more critically about what it says and how it puts things across. And that's been the claim, hasn't it, that, that, that Christianity has refused to really engage with the facts. And yet, ironically, it's actually now our own secular culture that refuses to think critically on many key issues. It refuses to engage in a dialogue. It simply tries to claim, no, this is, this is a done deal. This is decided. It doesn't want to even have the conversation. What is truth? Well, firstly, it doesn't exist. But secondly, it's something you can find. Look at verse 32. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth. It's something you can find. There's hopefulness here. Thirdly, what is truth? Well, truth is something that we can share in together. Jesus says here, you, plural, that is all of you, will know the truth. And the truth will set you, plural, all of you, free. It's not an individual thing. And this runs up against contemporary life, doesn't it? Because you'll have, perhaps like me, come across that phrase, my truth. It's, it's a phrase that, and a concept that has become sort of so ingrained in culture, you see it everywhere. Uh, you, you heard it, and, and I'm not commenting on what either did or didn't happen, but you, you hear it in, in the interview with, with Megan and Oprah, isn't it, that she was coming on and telling her truth about things. It's become so widely accepted that it would be uh, thrown out like that. And we hear it again and again. And yet there's two problems with it, isn't there? Well, firstly... Is this that what people say is their truth isn't always true, but their opinion and perception. 
not just talking about Megan there, by the way, as well. I'm just talking in general when people use that phrase. See, Urban Dictionary has even picked this up. You can see some of the definition there uh, behind me. That people sort of know that this whole thing of my truth doesn't really work. It's just what people use to get away with being a bit offensive and not be challenged. So the first problem is that, is my truth really true or is it just my opinion or perception? But secondly, there's also the problem that what, what happens when my truth and your truth contradict? Whose truth wins? What happens is there's no truth at all, is there? It's been completely relativized. There simply is no truth if the only truth that exists is my truth. So we must actually fight for truth not to be marginalized, not to be individualized, not to be relativized by this sort of radical narcissism that we live in, in post-modernity. Post what is truth? Well, it exists. Secondly, it's something you can find. Thirdly, it's something that we can share in together. But second question here, does truth matter? Does truth even matter really anymore? This is actually a question that's been being asked for some time. So you, uh, if you haven't ever seen it before, there's, there's an episode of Friends where uh, one of the characters, Phoebe, finds this cat and she believes that the cat has been possessed with uh, the spirit of her, her dead mother and she's so sort of happy and excited because she's obviously lost out on so much time with her mother. And then comes this sort of weird sort of thing of who is going to be the first one to actually say, Phoebe... As much as that makes you feel good, I don't think that that's true. The cat's called Julio, and it has an owner. And of course, in the episode, what happens is that Ross, the one who, who finally tells the truth, is the bad guy. And it's not just for the way he says it, it's partly that, but it's partly the fact that he even would tell her. And you see, there's a message there, isn't there? That Ross is a bad friend, not just because he tells the truth badly, but the message is that untruth doesn't matter so much as someone's happiness. He ought to have left Phoebe to her happy untruth than to have come in and crushed her happiness with the truth. Why not leave them to it if it makes them happy? And, and you know what else it says is that feelings are more important than the truth. There's always a message there, isn't there? So in that context, does truth matter? We live in a culture that has devalued truth. Truth is simply seen as just not so virtuous anymore, not so valuable, not so significant as feelings. And when push comes to shove, truth should ultimately change if it risks me not liking it or it stops me from doing what I want or being what I want. 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Does truth matter? The truth matters because it's freeing. And we can say the other thing as well, can't we? If the truth frees us, then we can also say that living in lies is enslaving. And yet, unfortunately, we live in a time in which it might be quite common to hear and to say that there's no great truth beyond 
your existence. You, you're just a product of an endless flow of evolution. You're here and then gone. There simply is nothing beyond it. Why would you waste your time and angst in wondering if there's anything beyond you? Just simply be and it will be what it will be and when you're done, you'll be done. And yet listen to how sad that is. How undignified. How devaluing. How dehumanizing. Now think for a second about who might want to perpetuate that narrative and why they might want to perpetuate it. See, that narrative encourages you, doesn't it, to disregard yourself and the world and to devalue yourself and the world around you. You're just a mammal, after all. It's a narrative that actually is perfect for disconnecting people, for individualizing them, and for privatizing the world we live in. And think for a moment, who might want to perpetuate that kind of a narrative? What might be gained from that? Let me tell you one thing in just simple economic terms. It makes you a greater consumer. The more that you disconnect yourself from others and privatize and individualize yourself, the more of a consumer you are. To every narrative, there's always a motive, isn't there? The way that you view yourself, and when you view yourself in that way, you open yourself up. See, it's a narrative that gradually desensitizes you to the immorality of the systems we live in, isn't it? You know, in a slightly more subtle way than being even used to justify violence, oppression, and injustice, which it has at times, it also just simply anesthetizes you to what is going on in our world. Because we think in a planet full of random chance and death and weak species dying out, should we really expect any better? If there is a truth, then what truth? That's the next question, isn't it? Because we live in a world where people are very prepared to truth bomb us on all sorts of subjects, whether we would wish to be or not. Well, let me give you four marks of this truth of the gospel. Well, firstly, it's a truth about God. We'll read to you here from Romans chapter 1, just a couple of verses here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is the way it puts it there. They suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. There's a truth about God that is oftentimes express, uh, suppressed. Sorry, But the truth is that God is a good creator. We're not just a product of random chance of the impossible, almost miraculous uh, maths. We're the product of a good creator who has made a good creation for us and always does within it what is good, what's right, what's perfect. But it's also a truth about the world, a world that God has made in and through and for himself and that he sustains and upholds by his own hand so that everything, whether seen or unseen, things and forces that hold things are made by and for him and upheld by him. 
a good creator God who has made all and upholds all for himself and through himself. But there's also a truth about us, that we've been made in the image of God. We're made, male and female, in the image of God, that we're his, that we're his work, that we have this innate dignity and, and value in our being as the children of God. We are more than mammals. There's no animal that's ever given that. But humanity, both male and female, is made in the image of God. It's the truth about God, about the world, about us, but also about life. That life is made, most of all, as an opportunity to worship God, our maker, and to enjoy the life that he's given. That it goes well for us, that we find peace, that we find contentment, that we enjoy life and worship him. You know, I'm, I'm not a huge sort of believer in personality tests, uh, but one of the things I think we maybe ought to do much more for people um, is to just sort of set them in a room with some Ikea furniture and watch what happens. Uh, because I find that it pretty much divides people about 50-50 through society between those who can follow instructions and those who, for one way or another, are just unable to follow instructions. Perhaps they have that dreaded sort of curse of feeling they might just know better than the instructions. Uh, and I think I have some uh, examples, I think, of some horrific uh, attempts at Ikea furniture. It's sort of a milestone in life, isn't it, when you sort of get to it. Uh, and perversely, I sort of actually quite enjoy it. But then that probably tells you that I don't mind just doing what the instructions tell me. Uh, you know, sometimes we just always imagine that we might just know that bit better. We might know a better way. But uh, here's a little advert I've knocked up for Ikea there, uh, just behind me there. Sometimes it turns out the person who made the instructions really didn't know what they were talking about. And sometimes in life we overthink so many things that you, you realize, you go back, maybe people before knew right after all. The Westminster Confession asks the question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief purpose in life? What are you really to do with life? And it answers it by saying that it's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Sometimes people knew it right all along, didn't they? But truth matters here because it frees us. Thirdly, what obscures the truth then? Look at verses 33 to 38 there with me. Jesus says here, uh, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now, I just want to point out four things from the words in that sentence there. Firstly, looking at that word sin. You know, sin here, is, it's not just about actions. Like we see that. But it, it, it's about this thing of deciding not to live in, in line with the truth that we've been talking about just now. And so it's missing God's mark. It's not just about those actions, although it incorporates that too, doesn't it? But sinning also keeps you from the truth. Look at that there. How does it do that? Well, firstly, it does it in that it dulls you. It dulls you so that you can't see it, you can't hear it. Much like if you work around sort of very loud noises or if you're someone who's sort of played for many years in a band with amplifiers at very high volumes, you get hearing loss. You actually start to struggle to be able to pick up the nuances of much more subtle sort of sounds. And sin has this way of just sort of dulling your senses. So that my 
problem of getting out of sin is not just about a lack of information. It's that there's something about me that's being affected here. But secondly, look at that word there, commits, just before that. The one who commits sin. And here there's this distinction, right, between temptation to sin, temptation to subvert God's truth, and enacting that in action. See, temptation and sinning are not the same thing. We have thousands of temptations to drift in wrong directions sort of every day, but it's what we do with it. The one here who commits sin is a slave to sin. But then go back just a little bit in that sentence there. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone. There's not certain permissible sins that don't have an effect, and then some other bad ones. Certain particularly bad sinners, and then some who, oh, well, are all right, really. No, it's everyone. See, now the trouble is, we do the opposite, because we have respectable sins, and then some less respectable sins. There are some sins that will always be easily spotted and called out. Drink, drugs, sex, violence. Saloon bar sins. They're easy to spot. Then there are some sins that are not so easy to spot. And in fact, they're somewhat more respectable. There may be more your sort of country club sins. It's that being a miser with money. That is not going to get called out in the same way, is it? It doesn't. In fact, it gets repackaged. The miser becomes the one who is careful and responsible. The one who is addicted to control it gets repackaged. Oh, they're not addicted to control. They're not a control freak. They're just a, a strong personality. Well, they have the right heart, do they? Is it any different? Does it matter what it is you're addicted to? The one who's judgmental. It gets repackaged, doesn't it? It doesn't get called out in the same way. It gets repackaged. No, they're, they're not judgmental. They're just really committed to their faith. They're really passionate. Passion runs over sometimes. Is it that? Hmm. Well, what about the idolizing of career? Doesn't get called out the same way, does it? It gets repackaged. Even though it can be just as damaging, just as toxic as some of those other things. And you can see it. But it'll get repackaged. It'll get repackaged. You know, they're just hardworking. They're committed. They're dedicated. Isn't that good? We want to endorse that. Those sins are seen as respectable. They don't get treated in the same way. But here, everyone, everyone. And then lastly, look at this uh, slave to sin there at the end of the sentence. There's a way that sin dulls us. Because it's talking about so you can't see it, you can't hear it. But it also gets its claws in so you can't get away. Sin, by nature, is a rejection of God's truth and an acceptance of a lie. So it stops you seeing the truth of God, the truth about you, the truth about the world, the truth about life. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. How can I be saved then? Well, verse 36, look at this wonderful hope. Out of all of this desperation... Before the truth frees, it hurts us. But now is the hope. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's a saving that you can rely upon. 
And look at how Jesus puts it here, verse 38 as well. I speak of what I've seen with my father. And you do what you've heard from your father. If you have the text there in front of you, this is why sometimes it's helpful to follow it along, you'll see the clever play on words that Jesus is making here. The distinction between he speaks of what he's seen with his father. They do what they've heard from their father. You'll see that Jesus speaks of his father, capital F, speaking of God. You'll see that when he speaks of their father, it's a lowercase f not God. Amazing. You can read the rest of the chapter to see that. He says, no, you're just doing what you've picked up from your father. I speak of what I've seen in my father. You do what you've heard from your father. All of those untruths about you, about the world, about life, about God, have an origin. The father of lies but what jesus says here the hope he brings the salvation he brings comes from what he's seen with his good father under this struggle to find truth because of sin is an author is an agitator is the adjunct provocateur satan and you might think well yeah you know you see that with sort of particularly bad people but it's just as true with these nice polite respectable religious people that Jesus is talking to here. Then lastly, how do I find the truth? Um, Novelist Iris Murdoch has said this about truth. We live in a fantasy world, a world of illusion. The great task in life is to find reality. The question for us then is how do I escape this vicious spiral that Jesus has described here? How can I be saved? How can I be set free? You know, the world says... My greatest problem is the restrictions upon me, the responsibilities that are put on me, the judgments that are made about me, the freedom that I lose, because I need saving to be myself. That's what I need. If only I could be free to be myself. Well, the gospel says, on the other hand, my greatest problem is not my lost freedom, But it is my sin, my own self-sabotaging. And I need saving from myself, not to be myself. And yet, this is so offensive to people today, isn't it? To, To think, to even admit this, that I might need saving, that I'm in a mess. And it was for these people here, too, just as much. They answered, verse 33, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? These are very religious people. They do everything that seems right. And yet, somehow, Jesus says here, they're actually sinning and enslaved. How can you say that? Well, the problem for these people here is that it's deeper than just doing bad things. If that's all sin is, then by that count, they're doing pretty good. They do lots and lots and lots of good things. But here's the problem. You can do good things for bad reasons and be no better. That's the depth of the problem, isn't it? It's not just about doing some things that I ought not do. It's about doing things that we're good to have done, but for all the wrong reasons. One commentator, John Gerstner, puts this, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins as your damnable good works. 
Tim Keller uses it in his little book, The Prodigal God, speaking of that story of the elder brother and the younger brother, and speaking particularly about that elder brother who was angry at the father's response of loving embrace of his younger brother. You see, the thing is, that older brother had always done what was good. His younger brother had made lots of mistakes and quite clearly done some things that were very bad. He was very remorseful of that. The older brother had always seemingly done what was right. He'd always worked very, very hard on the father's estate. He'd always done the right thing. But for all the wrong reasons. And you see it come out in the aftermath of it. Haven't I slaved away for you all these years? Why is he angry? He's angry because he didn't do those things because they were the right things to do. He didn't do them out of love for his father or his family's name. He did them to build his inheritance. And when the father cashes out the inheritance early, risking his eventual inheritance, and then goes further to cut the younger brother back into the inheritance again, his rage is kindled. Because he had only ever done those things to get things from the father. Things he loved were the things he could get from his dad. He hated his dad just as much as the younger brother. Who thought, you've been stopping my life all my life. I need to get out of here to truly live. The older brother thought it too. He just thought, if I dig in. When he croaks it, it all comes to me. And then he lost it. You can do good things for all the wrong reasons and be no better. That's the place these very, very religious people are in. And you know, here's the thing. It's actually far harder for a religious person who thinks they've got everything together to really accept that they need help. So how do we find that help here? Verse 35. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. You might think that's a bit of a tangent. Where does Jesus sort of bring that in from? But look at how it follows up because it makes sense of it. Verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Because of who Jesus is, the son who has spoken here of his father, because of who Jesus is, you go free. Because Jesus is God's son, who will always be in his house, if he sets you free, you will be free. It's the thing, you know, do you ever get that, those kind of nuisance calls at the door or on the phone? Can I speak to the decision maker in the house? And normally I would defer to Karis because that really is Karis, but I'm better at getting rid of nuisance calls than her because she's too polite. Uh, I, I'm not so bothered about being a bit rude. We're speaking to the decision maker. You can know for sure that you will be set free if Jesus sets you free because he's the decision maker. He's the bill payer here. How do we find the truth? Uh, American author Henry David Thoreau wrote the book uh, Walden uh, about the process of going into the woods to find what it means to truly live. Whether he could finally, after everything else, know what it really means to live life. And actually come the end of it, not sure that it's that clear that he really found the answer totally. We don't find 
the truth on some arduous quest. What we find is that the truth comes to find us. So as we finish, there's four things here. The gospel is truth. Following Jesus is not a call to blind, mindless faith. It's about actually having that posture uh, of being a lifelong learner, relearning all of life, all of what we thought we knew. The, the truth matters. Truth matters because it's the truth about God and the world and us and life that truly frees us to truly live. Thirdly, sin hides the truth. What stops us coming to the truth, what holds us back, isn't a lack of information, but sin that dulls us and entangles us. But fourthly, finally, the truth finds us. We don't have to go on some grand pilgrimage to find the truth. The truth finds you in a person, Jesus. Jesus comes, he finds us, he rescues us so that we may know the truth and truly live. I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, sing a, a final, final song together when I survey the wondrous cross and hopefully we'll take all of that wonder in all of what Jesus promises and assures us of here and fall back in praise together. Father, thank you for your wonderful love towards us. We, each of us, in different ways, maybe some of us are a bit more like the younger brother, and, 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 and maybe our story and our background is a bit more of, of maybe making some obvious mistakes and getting into some places where we, like that younger brother, said, what am I doing? What am I doing with my life here? Where am I really going? Or, or maybe we've been a little bit more like that older brother. And, you know, we've always actually really tried really hard to always do what was right and stuff. But, you know, as we reflect back on it, we think, you know, but I haven't always done it for the right reasons. It's not always been about love or anything, but it's just been, that was what I felt I had to do. That was what seemed to be right. That was what I needed to do to please certain people. But for each of us, we'll have made a mess of things in different ways. Lord, we thank you that we come to you a gracious and loving and compassionate Savior who does not push us away but throws open the doors for us to join you in your house. And Lord, we thank you for that hope and that assurance and confidence that because the Son remains in the house forever, if the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. Father, this morning, for those of us who don't feel free, whatever way, whether that's just that we've got ourselves lost again for the umpteenth time or whether because we've not quite found you yet. Holy Spirit, I pray that you might reveal the wondrous truth of your works and your love for us this morning, that we might find you and that we might find what it is to truly live. We ask it, Lord, for, for our good, but for your glory, that we might be a people who glorify you, and enjoy you and the life that you've given us and the world in which you've put us. So I pray, Lord, you, you might just do that deep work within us that my words are so incapable of doing. But Spirit, I pray that you would work in spite of me uh, and, and work through us now, I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and uh, we'll sing this song together. Mm -hmm.